Well, good morning. I think we will begin this morning. I hope the 10 minutes interlude was sufficient. Uh, I will open us in prayer this morning, and then we will pick up uh, towards the end of Deuteronomy 12. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have given to us, and we thank you that in your kind providence you have led us to it. We thank you that you are a all-wise and all-good Heavenly Father who works all things for our good. And though many things are not as we would have planned them or ordered them, your ways are so far above ours, we submit to your wisdom this morning. And so we pray that as we come to this text, that you would allow us to do that very thing, that we would see what is here and recognize it as good, life-giving truth. Open our eyes to this word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have no handout this morning. Uh, The reason for that is sometimes the text itself is all you need. And that's what we're going to aim for this morning. A very, very brief review of where we have been. In the beginning of Deuteronomy 12, Moses begins to lay out principles for formal worship. First, Israel is to destroy all vestiges of Canaanite worship, all of the places where they worshiped their gods. Verses 2 and 3. The next thing they are to do is to take everything to God's chosen place and worship the Lord only there. That is verses 4 to 19. In that, there is one qualifier, and the qualifier is that Israel is allowed to eat meat in any place uh, where they dwell, but they may not sacrifice the 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 animal before they eat it apart from the sanctuary. But if we go back real quick to chapter 12, verse 1, we will read that these are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. God is bringing Israel to a new land. When Israel is in that new land, Israel has certain conditions that must be fulfilled in order for God to fulfill fully the promises that he has given to them. The conditions they are to fulfill are the ones that we just reviewed. Destroy all places of Canaanite worship, destroy the names of the gods, and worship the Lord at his chosen place. If those conditions are fulfilled, or when those conditions are fulfilled, then... Now, if you look at the beginning of your paragraphs, starting in verse 20, we will look at several verses here. Verse 20 says, When the Lord your God enlarges your territory... Jump down to verse 29 in the ESV. It is a new paragraph, new section according to the ESV, but we can discuss that in a bit. Verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess. Chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or dreamer could also be translated when a prophet or dreamer. Verse 6, when your brother, or if your brother, Verse 12, if you hear in one of your cities, when you hear in one of your cities, what we don't see in English is that each of those paragraphs, verse 20, verse 29, chapter 13, verse 1, chapter 13, verse 6, and chapter 13, verse 12, all start with the exact same word. It is a, in this case, a conditional word. It means either when the Lord does this or if the Lord does this. So there are certain conditions that must be fulfilled in order for this very thing to take place. I want to back up, though. We've already covered the territory of chapter 12, verse 20. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised you. I would also be willing to translate that if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he has promised you. Not merely a when 
The reason for that goes back uh, to Exodus 34. So let's go back real quickly to Exodus 34, verses 23 and 24. So what I'm saying here is these next paragraphs that we're looking at, one we already have looked at and the ones we're coming to look at, they, they are all if-when clauses. I mean, we, we use the same sort of thing in our modern-day speaking, right? If and when this happens, as in it almost certainly is going to, but there are possible circumstances that would prevent that from happening. That is how this particle is working here, this, this little word in Hebrew. So in chapter 34... Verse 23, notice what the Lord says. Exodus 34, verse 23. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders, so that none shall cover your, covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. Notice the connection there between enlarged borders and Israel going to the place that God has chosen for Israel to worship. And what do we have? Keep a a finger in Exodus here. What do we have in Deuteronomy 12, verse 20? As we've, we've dealt with in verses 1 to 19, go to the Lord's chosen place, verse 20, when the Lord your God enlarges your territory, or if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised you, and you want to eat meat in any of your towns, you may. But don't forget to bring everything to the sanctuary. And that's how that section ends in verse 26. So I want to see the background there, the two elements. Enlarged territories are directly related to proper forms of formal worship in both Exodus 34 and in Deuteronomy 12. Now, if Israel fails to worship God the way the Lord has commanded, if the Lord is not exclusively worshipped by Israel, the conditions necessary for God to grant the blessings of enlarged territories and the nations being driven out before them are not met. The nations being driven out and the broadened territories are conditional promises. In fact, if we go to Judges 2, so just a little bit on the other side of Deuteronomy here, Judges 2, notice how these things relate. Judges 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. They, that is Israel, abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Jump down to verse 19. But whenever the judge died, they, that is Israel, turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, which again, the context is exclusive worship of the Lord, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. That the Lord drives the nations out is contingent on Israel worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh alone. If the Lord extends your boundaries as he has promised you. We could also look at Judges chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. It was only in order 
It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Labo Hamath. That is a description of Israel's western Philistine borders and the northern borders, reference to the territory of the Sidonians and Lebanon and so forth. When you conjure up a mental map of Israel in your mind, most of the time it's missing. If you include the western borders, which is the coastlands of the Philistines, you're still missing the northern part. It was supposed to go all the way up to the Euphrates rivers, hundreds of miles north of where Israel's borders actually ended. David did control all of that time to a degree, but Israel never completely owned it. And so all I'm trying to establish here is that when we come to verse 20 in Deuteronomy 12, and it says, when the Lord enlarges your territory, we could just as well say, if the Lord enlarges your territory, as he has promised you, and you want to eat meat, feel free to do so. So where we are this morning, where we're picking up this morning is in verse 29. And we're going to see the exact same thing when we read this verse. So let's read Deuteronomy 12, verse 29, to the end of the chapter. When, or if, the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land... Take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. So, in the new land, Israel is to destroy all places of Canaanite worship, eradicate the names of all of the gods, go to the Lord's chosen place of worship, and now avoid Canaanite worship practices. Verse 29, in the ESV, how many of you have a separate heading over verse 29? How many of you in your Bibles have a separate heading over verse 29? Some of you do, some of you don't. What I'm trying to draw out here is this isn't a new section. This isn't something new. This is a continuation from a different angle. We haven't changed topics. We've changed subtopics. So here, Israel, after they have defeated their enemies and they live in the new land... Israel is now supposed to keep an eye on themselves in order that they are not ensnared, verse 30, take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you. This could mean two things. First, it could mean don't seek the wisdom of the people you've just defeated. That's folly. Obviously, they couldn't withstand you. Why in the world would you follow what they've done? The other thing it could mean is do not fall into the same trap of bringing on yourselves the displeasure of God by serving the gods that they worshipped. Then you would be destroyed the exact same way they were destroyed. It could mean either one of those, and it could possibly mean both. The second part of that, and that you do not inquire about their gods... So do not seek their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods that I might do the same? Here the desire is to worship the gods of a defeated people. Which again, in ancient Near Eastern thinking, fighting the people is paramount to fighting the gods who have lived off of those people. And so it would in some way be nonsensical to do this. So, these Two aspects. So there's one, one primary verb here, take care. But what are they to take care of? Not to be ensnared by the peoples and not to inquire about their gods. Now, in 
verse 31, this is a little bit ambiguous. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. The ESV makes plain what isn't really plain in the text. They try to take out the ambiguity. The ambiguity is, is Moses prohibiting worshiping the Lord with Canaanite customs? Or is he telling Israel, don't worship Canaanite gods in Canaanite ways? So the question is, who is Israel not supposed to worship, and how are they not supposed to worship? Now the good news is, both of those things amount to about the same thing. Whether Moses is telling Israel, do not worship Canaanite gods with Canaanite practices, or if he's saying, do not worship Yahweh with Canaanite practices, he is essentially saying about the same thing. Because if we try to worship God in ways that he does not approve, we end up not worshiping the true God at all. And he is warning Israel away from that. We are to worship God in spirit and in truth. If we encapsulate in ourselves the humanitarian and God-word spirit of Christianity but reject the truth of revelation, our religion is empty. That's not genuine biblical spirituality. And that's easily confused because many people want to claim the ethics, the humanitarian ethics, and a Godward spirituality, but throw out revelation, throw out scripture. We can't do that. That is something the Lord doesn't approve of. Going the other way, if we want to claim divine revelation, we believe everything that is there, and we do not possess a God-word and humanitarian bent, our religion is nothing. Paul says, well, then you're a noisy gong clanging cymbal. Your your religion is hollow. Both the spirit and the truth have to be kept together if our worship is to be pleasing to the Lord. And that's what Moses is advocating for Israel here. Pay attention to what the Lord has commanded, which is pay attention to the Levite and worship the Lord at his chosen place. But it is also, do not serve the Lord in the ways that the Canaanites do, because in worshiping that way, they fail to worship God in truth. And that is seriously problematic. We'll pause right there real briefly. Thoughts or questions over that? Great question. So if you weren't able to hear it, what did the judges actually do? Let's go to judges real briefly. I'm I'm going to make that question a little bit more pungent, if I might. Um, I'm going to, to make your question more difficult to answer, in a sense. If we go to Judges 2... We'll start in verse 16. So Israel 
rebelled against the Lord. His hand was against them. Uh, ESV says for harm. Uh, We could also translate that for evil as he warned them. Verse 16, But the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after their gods and bowed down to them. Now, to your point, Janet, the judges themselves were generally not the sorts of characters you would want to hold up as the ideal, right? They were usually pretty problematic individuals. And each one gets worse and worse and worse and worse until we end with Samuel. Samuel is the last judge, a good judge, and a judge that Israel ought to have listened to. But here he refers to apparently not only to what the judges were to aspire to, but something that was genuinely communicated through the judges. Well, the way I would respond to verse 17, or the way I would explain to verse 17 and respond to your question, what does it mean that they didn't listen to their judges? I would say they didn't listen to what God was communicating to them through the judge. So whether or not the judge was a good and godly figure The fact of the matter is the Lord still used the judge to communicate to Israel. And what he communicated to Israel is that though their sins were many, his mercy is more. They walked away from the Lord and ran away from the Lord and aggressively pursued other gods so that they were unable to hear the message that the Lord was sending through the judge. So the judge, whether or not he lived it and preached it, the fact that he rescued Israel from the deliverers alone was evidence of the fact that the Lord was using the judge to save Israel. They just didn't listen to him. Does that answer your question? Great. All right, I'm actually going to move on here. In Deuteronomy 12, 31, we didn't finish the verse because we get to ride... uh, a theme that you have just brought up for us. Uh, Verse 31 of Deuteronomy 12, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. Now let's be cautious here. Moses is not saying that everything they do, the Lord hates. Moses is saying, everything the Lord hates, they do. And that's different. And it makes it difficult. Moses is not commenting on whether or not there are some good practices mixed in with Canaanite worship. His point is, the poison of Canaanite worship is so potent that you cannot glean good things from Canaanite worship by your own discernment. There is one source you use for worshiping the Lord. And I regret to inform you, verse 32 completely flattens it. All the words which I am commanding you, them or it, or every word. So it's not every commandment, it's every word. So here Moses is saying, in verse 32, every word I command you, that is what you be careful to do. The reason that's important is because Israel is to cast off all eyes toward Canaanite worship and focus on one thing, the words of Moses. That is it. Now there are two very important applications here. I'll start with what I think is in some ways the more immediate uh, and may or may not be the less obvious one. It is not uncommon for the church to look at what is called best business practices and try and incorporate them into the life of the church. Now, at best, best business practices are what has been plundered from Christian thinking and applied to the business world. And so we will find many good things in best business practices. And there will be many similarities between what the church ought to do 
and what those best business practices are. However, if we take our cues from the business practices, two things happen. First, glory is not given where glory is due. The idea comes from the Lord, not from the business practices. The second thing that happens is we will not have the discernment to discover where the poison is in the best business practice that has been brought in as we incorporate those practices into our ordering and operation of the church. So there are things that can sneak in along with those best business practices that we're completely unaware of. We haven't given second thought to because it's just part and parcel of what's being done. And so the church ought not to look at best business practices. We ought to look at what we have, the words of Moses and Jesus and so on. So that is how we structure the church, not by looking to the world around us. But there is an important note uh, on the side here to make. I was recently having a conversation uh, with my parents. My dad has been going through a chronological Bible. Um, and he says, it, it just seems like as the, the commentators are, are making their notes, that what Israel did was just kind of a taking from here and there from what the practices were around them. Um, how do you explain that? And my response was, God didn't create a new language when he spoke to the Israelites. God didn't create a new language when Jesus spoke to his disciples. He was using the language that they already knew. And so God communicates to Israel by keeping many of the forms. Uh, we might say the, uh, he keeps a lot of the language of formal worship. When he communicates to Israel how they are to worship. And so Canaanites have altars. They sacrifice to their gods. Israel has altars and sacrifices to her god. So there are a lot of things that overlap. But what's key is that in not confusing the overlap between one another. What I'm trying to say is there are Canaanite practices, Egyptian practices, Mesopotamian practices, and there are Israelite practices. They are not to overlap in practice. They may overlap conceptually. Another way to say it is this. God communicates something about himself through the worship practices that he gives Israel. And what he's communicating through that language is different than what the cultures around them who have similar practices have. That communicates something different about their gods. For example... Canaanites can worship under every green tree and on top of every high hill. That says something about their gods. Israel's worship may look the same as the Canaanites in terms of offering animals on the altar, even the types of sacrifices that they offer, but they only offer it at one place. That's not a good business practice, by the way, if you're an Israelite. But that's the law. That's, that's the way it functions. And having that worship centralized in one place communicates something about God that distinguishes him from all of the other gods. And so even though he uses the same forms of language, he uses the same language, he uses the similar practices, he's communicating something very different because he's communicating from the ground up. Don't look to the language over here. Don't look to these practices. Look to what I give you. And yes, there will be some similarities. But that doesn't mean that they can be transposed from one place to another. It doesn't work that way. Because then you're understanding the Lord in a fashion similar to how you understood the Canaanite gods. And they're not the same. They're entirely different. And so uh, let's not confuse similarities between the church and business practices. Again, it's, it's, I think, the best analogy that I can come up with. Don't confuse the two even when they look the same. We can't simply transpose them. Have said all of that. Uh, thoughts or questions? Uh, all the way. Uh, I'll mention one more thing here. End of verse 31. Uh, burning their sons and daughters in the fire. The Lord points to what you might call the logical outcome of Canaanite worship. If you take their thought process and apply it all the way to the end, this is where you result. This is where it ends. And the Lord is saying, by, by grabbing that ending point, all of the logic that proceeds up to it has to go. 
All of the thought that leads into this has to go and we start from scratch. Moses delivers it from scratch. Now I'm done with uh, chapter 12, thoughts or questions over what we've covered. Yes, in a a results-oriented culture, uh, we are terribly at risk uh, for adding and subtracting. I've been in uh, meetings where things were horribly non-Christian, and yet everybody seems to be able to pray. So prayer is one to watch out for, too. I don't really have a handle on what to do with it, but thankfully, once in a while, they'll call it an Anything else? All right. Uh, Let's move on then to Deuteronomy 13. So again, several contingent cases. First, contingent case, expanded borders for Israel allows for expanded eating opportunities, verse 20 to 28 of chapter 12. Second contingent case, wisdom shall not come from defeated enemies. We just dealt with that. Third contingent case, prophets and dreamers giving new revelation. Verses 1 to 5. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him, cling to him. But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery, to make you leave the way. We could also say to thrust you out of the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So verse 1, if or when each of these paragraphs is not only contingent it's also prophetic so the if and when both remain if a prophet or when a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you the assumption is there will be more prophets there will be dreamers of dreams who genuinely do come from the lord they really will give new revelation regarding god's activity but each of those revelations is a claim upon the character or the person of God. So every prophet is not only saying this is what God is going to do, and saying that he's also saying this is what God is like. And so he takes prophets and dreams pronounced in his name to be a very, very serious matter. This text 
assumes that there will be a sign either as a result of or attending the oracle of the prophet or the dream of the dreamer. So verse 2, end of verse 1, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass. So that's the condition. If what they speak, what, what do you do with a prophet or a dreamer whose sign is validated by actually happening? Now, a more well-known issue arises in Deuteronomy 18. Let's flip over there real quick. We'll spend more time on it, God willing, someday in the future. But Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 to 22. This, I think, is the passage that we are more familiar with. And it's a slightly different case, though not entirely unrelated. So Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 18. The Lord says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Now, we might ask, who does that mean? Ultimately, I think it means Christ, but there were many who predated Christ. Joshua could even fit into this. But anyway, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word of the Lord? How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? So here's a test. How do we know if the prophet is a valid prophet? The answer is in verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. So test number one, according to Deuteronomy 18, how do we know if a prophet is true? If the sign he gives you happens, if the word he speaks comes to pass. Deuteronomy 13 is dealing with a different issue. The prophet has spoken, and what he has said comes to pass. Shall we listen to him? Deuteronomy 13, verse 1, 2, and 3. If the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, verse 2. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, do not listen to him. So here's the distinction. In regards to Deuteronomy 18, Edgar Wisenant, is that how you say his name? If you don't know the name, you'll know the name of the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come in 1988. Deuteronomy 18 says, don't worry about him. It's not a problem. Deuteronomy 13 is different. The Egyptians were able to imitate at least a few of the signs Moses gave. Should we listen to them? This is another test. If they claim to work in the name of another god, Deuteronomy 18 mentions that, but Deuteronomy 13 doesn't. Deuteronomy 13 only says if they try to get you to worship a God other than Yahweh, don't pay attention to them, even if the sign was done in Yahweh's name. That's important. Because in Deuteronomy 18, it just doesn't come to pass. In Exodus, with the Egyptians... The power was presumably done by a less than the Lord's power. Demonic power, we might call it. Some, something was there, but it wasn't the Lord's power at work. Deuteronomy 13 presumes 
the Lord's power at work through the prophet. One reason I say that is because of verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. He doesn't test them with the false message. He tests them with the validation signs of the message, and that's different. He's testing Israel by allowing that prophet or dreamer to actually work true signs. Now let's go over to Matthew, a couple of verses here. We're going to take this into the New Testament quick. And we'll jump to to contemporary times in just a minute. Matthew 12, verses 26 and following. Jesus here is being accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. So again, similar to the Egyptian magicians, satanic power at work. But here Jesus says, no, no, that's just not sensical. That, that doesn't work in this, in this case. So Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 12, verse 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, notice how Jesus is working Deuteronomy 13 here. He gives allusions to the sons of the Pharisees casting out demons. Does that mean that they were disciples of Christ? Not necessarily, right? And if you think that's far-fetched, flip back just a little bit to Matthew 7. This is a passage, no doubt, that will ring in your ears. Deuteronomy, uh, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness, you who lead people to worship gods other than Yahweh. Why in the world were they given the power to work the signs they did if they weren't true prophets? Deuteronomy 13.3, the Lord's testing you. Are you going to follow his way or are you not? Today, we shouldn't be surprised and we shouldn't be shaken to see preachers and miracle workers actually doing things that seem to be validating signs of their ministry, right? We all have heard of famous televangelists who are also healers, right? Is everything they do a sham? Well, not necessarily, Possibly something that they do is, has genuine, long-lasting effect. Does that mean we should follow them? No, it doesn't. Why is that? If what they teach and who they lead us to worship is not Jesus Christ, the Lord is testing you. So those people may have validating signs, signs that validate their message, but the message isn't true. And we know it's not true because they lead their people to worship someone other than the king of the covenant. So even if power does come from Jesus, that doesn't mean they should be sought if love for the Lord and obedience to the Lord are not their primary ministry, if that's not primarily what they lead people into. So so these people then are given as a test. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 13, verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the question. Do you love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul? So again, God doesn't test Israel with the message. He tests Israel by giving signs to someone who gives them a bad message. And if God is our highest treasure, 
our response to that prophet will first be verse 3. You shall not listen or you shall not obey the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams. Instead, God is our highest treasure and we turn in verse 4 and act like it. Rather, you shall walk after the Lord your God and serve him. And by the way, notice in verse 4, walk after the Lord your God is in contrast to they tell us to worship gods we don't know. There is an intimacy between us and Yahweh. He's a God we have known. He is the God we walk after. Six verbs here. We walk after this God. We fear him. We keep his commandments. We obey his voice. We serve him and we cling to him. That's what our God is to us. And this other person, this prophet or dreamer, is trying to lead us to worship gods we haven't known. And so there's a a contrast that is being set there as well. And so all of verse 4 is to not only direct us in a certain way, but verse 4 actually has as its focus, by the way it's worded, God. So the English translation here flips it. It's actually the Lord your God. Uh, you shall not listen unto the words of the prophet or unto the dreamer. After Yahweh your God you shall walk, and him you shall fear, and his commandments you shall keep, and his voice you shall obey, and him you shall serve, and to him you shall cling. So him is put first in all of those verbs, not our action. It's the action to whom it's directed. This is the God who is set before you and who you ought to follow. And if that's how we act towards God, what is our response then to the prophet? Verse 5, but that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to redeem you from the house of slavery. So the treasonous prophet or dreamer is to be put to death. Capital punishment is not only fitting, but kind of taken for granted in cases of treason. And if that's true in the humanly political realm, how much more when it comes to matters of treason against the God who actually made us a free people, who we were supposed to cling to. So Moses adds two descriptors to God here in verse 5. He is the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and he is the God who redeemed you out of the house of slavery. And the reason the prophet is to be put to death, because he not only taught rebellion, but now he did so to make you leave the way or to thrust you out of the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. I don't know how many of you have siblings. Do you ever have it when your sibling was walking on a narrow path or you were walking on a narrow path and just a little shove to tip them off? Um, That's what the prophet and dreamer is, is doing here. They're just giving them a push to get them out of the path that the Lord has set out before them. And so they are to be put to death. The reason for that, the end of the verse, end of verse 5, So you shall purge the evil from your midst, lest the cancer spread to the rest of Israel. Execute them. Put away with the evil quickly and ruthlessly. And we'll spend more time on that next week when we get to the next paragraph. For what we've covered today, thoughts or questions over what we've done? I'll uh, I'll give you a preview to where we're going next week. Um, And that is Jesus saying things like, cut off your right hand if it causes you to sin. So not, and excommunication in the church. So the social element of it is excommunicate ruthlessly from your church. People who teach to go contrary to the Lord personally cut off all roots of sin in your own life. And Jesus uses there at least the imagery of cutting your hand off if it causes you to sin or plucking out your eye question. Uh, John? Just a question about Acts chapter 
So what do I make of Acts 16, 18? I make of that, um, just off the top of my head, um, that even the demons know who Jesus is and they shudder. So that a spirit would be able to identify Jesus is no surprise, especially given what we read in in the Gospels and what we've been over in Mark uh, as well on Sunday mornings, that this particular demon is proclaiming truth. There's two ways to take it. First, you could leave it it's a, as a mystery, right? Why in the world would the demon be giving this public broadcast on behalf of Paul? Um, but that's our view of it. Paul's reaction is annoyance. Should we take that to be a character flaw on Paul's part? Or was the point of the Spirit to raz the apostles and drive them out? Was this good press or bad press? I'm inclined more towards that second thing, to where this is bad press meant to drive Paul and Silas out, not as good press to bring people to them. Because one thing you don't see in the text is everyone saying, oh, that's amazing, we should listen to Paul and Silas. Oh, they're amazing preachers. They are presenting the way of salvation. Let's follow them. It doesn't happen. They get thrown in jail. Um... I think generally people are not that terribly excited about knowing the way of salvation, especially one that is based on grace. That's all I got for you. We are at time. Janet, real quick. I wasn't going to bring that up as a particular topic, though we could. Uh, because uh, next paragraph is in Deuteronomy 13 is how do you deal with uh, intimate associates who are trying to lead you astray? The last one is what do you do with cities who have gone astray? And so we could fit in a, a topic of church, dis- uh, church discipline uh, after that section. All right, thanks for joining. Uh, God willing, I'll see you next week.